Welcome, podcast listeners. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Last year, when we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2, we offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast. And listeners loved it. This year, we're bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 3, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guests and let them take over this special episode. Hi, this is Gary Antonacy. I'm author of the book Dual Momentum Investing and the blog dualmomentum.net. I'm going to read a piece called Extended Backtest of Global Equities Momentum. In 2013, I created my Global Equities Momentum, GEM, model. It holds U.S. or non-U.S. stock indices when stocks are strong and uses bonds as a safe harbor when stocks are weak. When my book, Dual Momentum Investing, was published in 2014, I had Barclays bond index data back to 1973. Since one year of data is needed to initialize the GEM model, Results went from 1974 through 2013. In 2015, I got access to Ibbotson Intermediate Government bond data. This allowed me to extend GEM back to 1970. The extra bond data lets us see how GEM performed during the 1973-74 bear market. GEM was up 20% those two years, while the S&P 500 index was down over 40%. This was a short but impressive out-of-sample validation of my dual-momentum approach. I thought 1971 was as far back as I could ever take GEM because MSCI non-U.S. stock index data only went back to 1970. But I recently obtained long-term global financial data going back much further. We usually want as much data as we can get to confirm an investment strategy. But we also have to consider how realistic our results will be under earlier conditions. Global investing, for example, makes little sense during the two world wars. In World War I, there were strict capital controls that made it almost impossible to invest globally. These eased up a bit during the 1920s, but they strengthened again during the Great Depression. During World War II, They were strongest they had ever been. Even if you could have invested globally back then, it would have made little sense to do so. Imagine as a U.S. investor, you went to a cocktail party and said you just bought German, Italian, or Japanese stocks. You would never get invited to another party. As an institutional investor, you would have lost all your clients. Even if you had invested globally then, it would have been imprudent. Right after World War II, German stocks lost 91% of their value, and Japanese stocks dropped 97%. Governments did not know how to manage their economies prior to World War II. In the U.S., the government made the Great Depression worse by austerity measures and by not having social safety nets or safeguards like the FDIC to protect the public. So, what is a good starting date for global investing? The first academic paper to point out the benefits of international investing was by Grubel in 1968. 
There were similar papers in 1970 and 1974. The first mutual fund to make global investing available to U.S. investors was the Templeton Growth Fund that began in 1954. Asnes, Israeloff, and Liu, in their paper International Diversification Works, eventually, began their study of global investing in 1970 using global financial data. This seems to be a reasonable starting time. So GEM results will begin January 1950. Data sources. We use the S&P 500 index for U.S. stocks. For non-U.S. stocks, we use the MSCI All Country World Index, XUS, from its start date in January 1989. It includes both developed and emerging markets. By using as broad an index as possible, we avoid selection bias. Before 1989, we used the MSCI World Index XUS from its start date in January 1970 and the Global Financial Data World Index XUS before then. For bonds, we used the Barclays US Aggregate Bond Index from its start date in January 1973. Before 1973, we used the Ibbotson Intermediate Government Index of five-year bonds. GEM model. Getsky and Samanov in 2015 show that momentum consistently outperformed buy and hold back to the year 1801. Momentum applied to geographically diversified stock indices outperformed momentum applied to stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, and sectors. That is how we use momentum. When the trend of stocks is up according to absolute momentum applied to the S&P 500 index, we use relative strength to determine if we will be in U.S. or non-U.S. stocks. When the trend of stocks is down, we invest in bonds. We use a 12-month look-back period for both types of momentum, and we rebalance monthly. A 12-month look-back was effective in the very first study of momentum by Cowles and Jones in 1937. It also worked best in the Jagadish and Tipman 1993 seminal study on relative momentum and in the Moskowitz 2012 seminal study on absolute or time series momentum. A 12-month momentum look-back soundly beat buy and hold from the beginning of stock market trading in the 1600s and when applied to other markets all the way back to 1223, as reported by Grazerman and Kaminsky in their book, Trend Following for Managed Futures. Tobias Moskowitz, a respected momentum researcher, said, Momentum is a phenomenon that exists at 6 to 12-month horizons. Most academic papers on stock market momentum thus use a 6 or 12-month look-back. We prefer to use 12 months because there is more out-of-sample evidence supporting it. It also has fewer trades and is more tax-efficient than using a shorter look-back. GEM results. We compare GEM results to a global asset allocation, or GAA, benchmark of 45% in U.S. stocks, 28% in non-U.S. stocks, and 27% in five-year government bonds. These percentages represent the amount of time Gen spent in each of these markets. It is also representative of a typical global asset allocation portfolio. 
from January 1950 through September 2018, GEM had a compound annual growth rate of 15.8% versus 10% for the GAA benchmark portfolio. GEM's annual standard deviation was 11.5% versus 9.8% for GAA. The Sharpe ratio of GEM was 0.96. The Sharpe ratio for GAA was 0.57. The maximum month-end drawdown for GEM was minus 17.8% versus minus 41.2% for the GAA portfolio. Results are hypothetical, are not indicative of future results, and do not represent returns that any investor actually earned. The correlation in monthly returns between GEM and GAA is 0.6, and between GEM and the S&P 500 is 0.5. There were on average only 1.5 trades per year with GEM, so transaction costs would have been minimal. These results are updated monthly on the performance pages of my website, OptimalMomentum.com. Relative versus Absolute Momentum Relative momentum is where we switch between U.S. and non-U.S. stocks based on their relative strength. It still suffers from equity-like drawdowns. But for investors with a mandate to always be in equities, relative momentum with GEM gave 200 basis points more in annual return than the S&P 500. Absolute momentum had 90 basis points more in annual return than the S&P 500. Its lower return than relative momentum is due to occasional whipsaws and lags in getting in or out of equities at their turning points. But absolute momentum gave reduced drawdowns. There is a synergy in combining both types of momentum. The combined whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If you reduce bear market exposure using absolute momentum, you gain more from relative strength momentum in bull markets. For example, the average bear market loss of the S&P 500 since 1970 has been 33%. It takes a 50% gain to recoup that size loss, and the stock market gains about 10% a year. So it can take five years on average to reach break-even after a bear market. If absolute momentum substantially reduces bear market losses, then bull market gains become new profits instead of making up losses. That is why GEM shows an impressive 440 basis point increase in annual return above the S&P 500 from 1950 until now versus 200 basis points for relative momentum and 90 basis points for absolute momentum. As with absolute momentum, GEM returns were achieved with considerably reduced downside exposure. Core versus satellite. Fama and French call momentum the premier anomaly. With a growth in factor-based investing, more investors are now willing to add momentum to their portfolios. Trend following has also been gaining traction. Academic research on trends over the past few years has switched from hostility to skepticism to acceptance. More often than not, those who invest with momentum or trend use it as a satellite rather than as a core holding. This may be due to anchoring or familiarity bias, 
There may also be strong home country bias that reduces investing in non-U.S. stocks. Some investors may not fully appreciate dual momentum as a more dynamic way to diversify. Others might have a long-standing prejudice against timing stock market entries and exits. For investment professionals, there is also career risk. All strategies that diverge from the market will at times underperform. If you lose money when everyone else is losing money, you will probably hold on to your clients. But that changes if you are doing something different and lose money when others are not. Ironically, the biases that keep investors away from dual momentum are reasons why it works as well as it does. The behavioral explanation of momentum starts with underreaction to relative and relevant information. For more details about JAM or dual momentum, see my book, Dual Momentum Investing. <laughs>